I'm Bill Moyers. This week on Moyers and Company, the Supreme Court considers handing the rich even more power over democracy. Heather Gergen. What we're seeing really right now is just money being pulled into the system because politicians are always hungry for more money. Right now, we limit the ways they can get that money, but what, what McCutcheon wants to do is make it easier for politicians to get that money. And the noted storyteller and historian Joyce Appleby explores how curiosity liberated the old world to create the new. Curiosity depends upon your imagining something different from what exists. Mm-hmm. It absolutely has this radical notion that we aren't bound by everything that we see and that, and that we're told. Thanks for joining us. It will take a long time to recover from what's been happening in Washington. But we now know that the insurrection against the rule of law didn't happen spontaneously. It was hatched months ago, not by rank-and-file folks across the country who look on Michelle Bachman as the incarnation of Joan of Arc, but by old hands at right-wing politics who are burrowed deep into the culture of Washington, like this man, Edwin Meese, who was Ronald Reagan's attorney general and has been hanging around the Heritage Foundation more or less ever since. Heritage is where the faithful receive communion and pick up their talking points. According to reporting by New York Times journalists Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Mike McIntyre, just after Barack Obama began his second term, Ed Meese and the leaders of three dozen conservative groups met to decide on a take-no-prisoner strategy to defund Obamacare, even if it meant shutting down the government. They gathered big bucks from the billionaire Koch brothers, over $200 million from one Koch-related group alone. One of the plotters, Michael Needham, CEO of the Heritage Action Fund, told the Times that what happened was a groundswell that changed Washington from the outside in. Not so. This was an inside job by dissidents of long-standing who, having slipped to minority status, attempted a coup d'etat against majority rule. The story's far from over, and we'll be coming back to it in the weeks ahead. But for now, there's something else deserving your attention, an important story that more or less got pushed aside by the storm over the shutdown. Conservatives sent their lawyers to the Supreme Court to argue for a green light, to flood politics with a lot more cash. Keep in mind that we already have in this country what the Watchdog Sunlight Foundation describes as an elite class that increasingly serves as the gatekeepers of public office. That thin sliver of the very rich, the 1% of the one percenters, has so much money it wants to keep on giving. So here was the Supreme Court hearing a big case that could take the lid off and allow the rich to spend even greater sums of cash to influence our elections. Although its official name is McCutcheon versus FEC, let's call the case Citizens United the sequel. Here to talk with me about this is Heather Gerken, described by the Boston Globe as one of the most closely watched young stars in the legal academy. That's because of her provocative and innovative thinking about election and constitutional law. She's a board member of the Campaign Legal Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization founded by someone familiar to viewers of this broadcast, the Republican reformer Trevor Potter. Heather Gerken clerked with Supreme Court Justice David Souter, practiced law, then taught at Harvard before joining the faculty of Yale. She's the brains behind the Democracy Index, a new plan for fair elections. Heather Gerken, it's good to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. What's at issue in this case? As you know, when you give in a campaign, you can only give a certain amount of money to a candidate. But there's also a limit that most people never notice because most people don't have nearly enough money to to reach it. But there are limits on how much you can spend in the aggregate. So you can spend about $123,000 on federal elections all told. In one election cycle. In one one election cycle, exactly. But what's being argued in this case is that you should be able to spend as much as you want. That is, you can have limits on the amount you can give to each candidate and each party committee and each party. But you can give to as many candidates as you want and as many party committees as you want and as many PACs as you want. All of those things are capped right now, which would mean, just in real terms, that instead of about $123,000 being the cap, one donor could give $3.5 million to uh, political parties and candidates. 
There was this moment during the oral arguments when Justice Scalia told Solicitor General Verrilli that compared with the billions of dollars sp already spent on federal campaigns by parties, candidates, political action committees, and super PACs, he said, I don't think $3.5 million is a heck of a lot of money. Does this surprise you to hear that from a Supreme Court justice? Well, I will say um, two things. One is $3.5 million is a lot of money, I think, to just about anyone except for the, you know, the Adelsons of the world. Uh, but the other thing that I will just say, and, and this was made by another commentator, talk about chutzpah. So the reason that these people are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars in the last election is Justice Scalia. You know, they're the ones who allowed this to happen in the first place. And so, so it, Scalia and the majority on the Scalia court. Scalia and the majority on the court. So for them to say, well, we've got a, a giant problem on one side, so the solution is to create a giant problem on the other side. Well, they're the reason for the giant problem that they were describing. Citizens United. Citizens United. In response to Scalia, um, Solicitor General Verrilli said, I don't think that's the right way to look at it, Your Honor. If you think that a party's got to get one and a half billion dollars together, that's about 450 people you need to round up. Less than 500 people, the Solicitor General said, can fund the whole shooting match. It's a remarkable statement. Uh, although I'll just say my worry is bigger than General Verrilli's worry. So he worries that 400 people will fund the whole shooting match. My worry is that once 400 people realize they can put funding in like that, there'll be 800 of them, or maybe 1,200 of them, that, that more money will move into the system because people will realize just how far their money's going to go, just how much influence their money can buy. That takes us to a world where money plays an even more powerful role in politics than it does now. And, it, and I'll just say, I mean, I, I believe in the First Amendment, but, but it's hard to imagine money playing a bigger role than it did in 2012. And yet, it looks like we're heading in that direction in 2016. But can it be worse than it is now? <laughs> I, you know, I actually was one of the people who thought it couldn't, uh, but it never occurred to me that the Supreme Court would be striking down contribution limits. So we actually could see something that's much worse than we have now. This is a deregulatory court, and Citizens United made it very difficult to regulate what was called independent spending. That's the money that you spend on your own in favor of your candidates. And right now, it's the Wild West in independent spending. You can spend basically as much as you want, often without anyone even knowing that you're spending the money. So what we're looking at now on the contribution side, which is the amount of money you give directly to the candidate for him or her to spend as much as she, in the way she wants, that looks like it's moving into the world of the Wild West as well. I read some research last evening that in the last election cycle, there were 1,219 of the wealthiest donors who reached or almost reached the limit now prevailing. Yes, well, I will just say that those numbers actually could increase for the following reason. Reaching the limit of $123,000 isn't really that influential. That's the point of the limit, that even if you reach the cap a bit, you're not gonna be the person who gets a seat at the table automatically. So $123,000 is just not that much money in politics nowadays if you're thinking about how much is spent for all the campaigns, however, if you're someone who can fund an entire senatorial campaign, if you're someone who can give a, a, a chunk of the president what the presidential campaign needs, you're going to get a seat at the table. So those numbers may underestimate the number of people who are going to want to do this because when you can spend $3.5 million, you can get a lot more influence and people will start to say, hmm, that sounds like a really good use of my money. Well, you say seat at the table, but don't you really mean they can set the agenda? They can buy the ads that determine what we talk about in a campaign. They can, uh, they can actually destroy an opponent with spending money in negative advertising. It's more than a seat at the table. It's, it's actually worse than that, though. I worry not just about um, their ability to influence the election, but they're going to influence the governance agenda. So if you know that the people who are funding your campaign are against this legislation or in favor of this legislation, it's going to be very hard for party leaders not to pay attention to that fact. So it's not just a seat at the table on election day, it is a seat at the table for the next four to six years when they're governing. It means they can, in effect, buy the policy outcomes they want from the legislative process because the uh, incumbents they have supported with three and a half or more million dollars are going to be paying attention to them when they come to the table. It's not, it's not the direct kind of thing, bum, bags full of money in exchange for votes, but it's, it's actually more pernicious in a way because it shapes the whole background of politics about what's allowed to be talked about and what isn't allowed to be talked about, about what kind of votes are going to happen and what kind of votes aren't going to happen. So what it means is Wall Street 
is going to be controlling the congressional agenda, but Main Street is not. Well, the majority on the court would disagree with you because remember in Citizens United, they said, well, if corruption were the issue here, if, we could, if you could prove uh, corruption, Ms. Gherkin, we would listen to you, but you can't prove corruption. This is just the politicians give gratitude to their donors, but it's not a quid pro quo, and, and, and you can't demonstrate that it is buying these policy outcomes. That's right. The Supreme Court in Citizens United changed the standard. So it used to be, in fact, that what Justice Kennedy calls ingratiation and access, that was corruption. And that was corruption under Supreme Court precedent. In the early 1990s and the early 2000s, that's exactly the definition because the rest of the Supreme Court, the majority that once held, understands that politics is more complicated than you give me money, I give you a vote. They understand that, that corruption can run through a system in, in a way that's far more pernicious and deeper, but subtle. Um, Justice Kennedy has a much narrower view of what constitutes corruption, and that has been the source of deregulation um, in Citizens United. What do you think's been the main impact of Citizens United? To create what I think are shadow parties. So in the olden days, right, money went through the parties, money went through the candidates. But now Citizens United has made it possible to raise inordinate amounts of money outside of the party system. So this is Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS. This is the super PACs. And the thing that's amazing about these organizations is they're not really independent. They're technically independent, mm -hmm. but they are being run by the campaign staff. They are constantly interacting with the campaigns, which means if you're a politician, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be part of the party, which has lots of limits right now before McCutcheon on, on what it can raise, but you can have your shadow party with your guys raising money in exactly the way you want them to and running ads for you. Why do you call it a shadow party? They are doing all the kinds of things you can do in a campaign. They're framing issues, they're running ads, they're helping candidates get elected. The one key difference, though, is that the, the party faithful, who are the, the people who knock on doors, the, the, the foot soldiers of our democracy, the people who show up at rallies with donuts, the people who put signs on their yard, the people who go drive people around to get them out to vote, they're in the regular party. They're not in the shadow party. The shadow party is for the big donors, the elites, the top campaign staff, but the regular everyday people are still stuck back in the old party. Which is more powerful? the old real party or the shadow party? Right now, we'll, we're seeing both of them uh, in, sort of neck and neck in terms of power, but I'll just say if we continue with this deregulatory strategy, we may see the shadow party, by virtue of the fact that all the money is there, be the one that really matters. You call this a deregulatory court. Explain that. So one of the things that, that's been really interesting about the Supreme Court is that in cases that people know about, Citizens United, and in lots of cases that they don't know about, they're gradually pulling away at the re regulation that was passed by Congress in McCain-Feingold. So McCain-Feingold was actually a big campaign finance bill that changed the system entirely. And, and people thought it was working. But little by little, quietly, the Supreme Court just pulls one thread out of that, out of that uh, cloth after another. And as we see now, they've pulled enough threads out of it that the system has begun to unravel. And now what we've seen is, thanks to Citizens United and the court's deregulatory impulse, we're seeing these, don these donors are coming back. You know, the empire always strikes back. They're coming, coming back fiercely, and they've got a huge amount of money in the system. Excuse me, but I have to think this is somewhat, if not all, well-coordinated. I mean, James Bopp, who is the lawyer who was the intellectual architect of Citizens United, uh, was a player in this McCutcheon case. He didn't argue the case, but he signed on to it. Mitch McConnell, the leading Republican, is a vacuum cleaner for money uh, in Congress. The court that's come into play is a, appointed by one conservative president after another. Is it wrong of me to be skeptical? I would say this is a movement. This is a group of people who decided they wanted to achieve a goal, which was deregulation, and they have been working bit by bit case by case uh, in order to achieve that goal. Now, in some senses, that's what everybody does. If you think about the um, olden days, you know, the NAACP litigated the, some cases to build the precedent that led to Brown v. Board of Education. So Jim Bopp is doing that for a slightly different kind of purpose. But for the last 10 years, he has been bringing case after case. And it used to be you'd read his legal arguments and you'd think, there's no way that could win. Under current precedent, that's plainly wrong. But what Jim Bopp has done is changed what the precedent is. And now we are at a point 
we're seeing arguments in briefs, for example, that public finance is unconstitutional, that, that a variety of challenge of, of things that have been sort of the, the, the base of campaign finance over time are unconstitutional. And, and that's because this group of lawyers, using test case after test case, has managed to push their agenda through the courts. What is their goal as you see it? I think their goal is to simply deregulate money in, in politics. I mean, it's hard to see what's left uh, when, when they're done. If you look at the arguments they're raising below, pretty much everything is going to go. Um, and if everything goes, we're going to be back to the days pre-Nixon uh, where... Pre-Watergate. Pre-Watergate, where there's a lot of, you know, there's money in politics and it's virtually unregulated. Anybody in that movement would say to you, this is really about free speech. The court has, has said free speech trumps all other priorities in our society because without free speech, uh, we have no dissent. I think that they're right to think that the First Amendment is squarely implicated. You always worry when the government regulates what people can do in terms of political speech. So there's no question that all of these things should be subject to scrutiny, to, to a look by the court. But we also have another value in our constitutional system, which is called equality. It, and the worry is that uh, if you interpret the First Amendment in such a wooden way, in such an extreme way, uh, that you're eventually going to undermine equality, which is another deep value embedded in our system. How would it undermine it? It would undermine it because people like uh, uh, my parents uh, would have no say at all in the political system because they're not the ones uh, with, with money enough to get the attention of politicians. They can There's, vote. Isn't that what it's all about? Voting? People can vote, but you need to get your message to them. People can vote, but you have to help have a campaign that's going to help them get to the polling place. People can vote, but you, but you have to have an opportunity to, to tell them what the issues are, to shape the way the conversation takes place. So one great description of politicians is that they're conversational entrepreneurs. They're the ones who frame the agenda and, and tell the American people, here's, here's what we're talking about and here's some ways to think about it. If one set of politicians, because of the, the, of the money backing them, is able to dominate that conversation, then you worry in the long run that the vote isn't going to be nearly as meaningful as it is now. And now you have the independent groups that can frame that conversation. They're really, these outside groups with all the money that at their disposal are now determining what's discussed in the campaign. Well, I mean, I will say that the best argument for McCutcheon's side is that once you have Citizens United, which is giving these independent groups so much money, you should let the parties catch up. And some McCutcheon's arguments would let the parties catch up to what's going on independently. And, and I understand that argument, and I believe that it's important for the parties to be able to hold their own with the independent spending. But, but the more obvious answer, and the one that the Supreme Court talked about uh, during argument was, well, maybe we should rethink Citizens United. Because again, as I said before, just because we've created the Wild West uh, on independent spending, it doesn't mean that the right answer is to create the Wild West on, on the party side. Maybe the answer is actually to go back to a world where we had some regulation on both sides. Do you think Citizens United can be reversed? Citizens United depended upon one vote, uh, which is Justice Kennedy's vote. It was, it was a very close decision. And when it was made, we didn't really know what the effects were going to be. And, and oftentimes the Supreme Court does change its mind when it makes a decision and the facts on the ground turn out not to be what they thought they were. So it is perfectly acceptable for the court to rethink what it was doing because the facts on the ground turned out to have changed. What do you worry about most with this McCutcheon case? So the one thing that we've always sort of hoped about the way money is working right now is that maybe in the long run the incumbents who are inside the parties would feel like they were being beaten by the independent spending and they might have some reason to regulate it. But if you create a world where the incumbents can get all the money they want from inside the system, which is what McCutcheon is pushing us toward, the worry is that no one has any incentive to regulate who's in power. And in a world where no one has any incentive to regulate, we're not going to get regulation. The, the core problem in election reform is that the foxes are guarding the hen house. And so every politician would like to preserve his seat. And if the regulation helps the politicians and the incumbents, they, they'll, they'll keep it. And if it doesn't, they won't pass it. So my worry in the long term is that we pull all the incentives out for change because the people who are most interested in these questions and know the most about these questions are the politicians who will be opposing the regulation. And in that world, it's almost impossible to get reform passed. Everyday people, the polls show, they, they realize, 70, 75 percent realize that there's too much money in politics. And they just say, they throw up their hands and, and, and turn away. Is, is that your experience? 
I think the better way to think about it is there's always going to be money in politics, but it matters where the money goes and how it, it gets there. So just to give you an example, even with independent spending, which has been really terrible uh, in the last few years, if we could trace where the money came from, that would make a big difference. If when you see one of these ads run by Americans for America, and it seems really wonderful and it tells you how great coal is, I think if people, and people hear Americans for America and they think it's just an ad, I think if people heard at the end of that ad, this was paid for by the coal industry, they think differently about the ad. When we, you were talking about, you know, this all goes back to voters, if we just give voters the tools they need to see what's actually happening, uh, to, to realize where money is in the system, it might give them the weapon they need to fight back. Well, in his majority opinion written for the court at the time for Citizens United, Justice Kennedy said disclosure is, is perfectly acceptable here if we're going to make the system work. But when the disclosure provision was put before the Senate, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans filibustered it, in effect. They, they, they throttled it. They did not let the Senate vote on disclosure. Well, this is another example of what you would call chutzpah, because when McCain-Feingold was being passed, what Republicans like Mitch McConnell would say over and over again is, we don't need to cap anything. We don't need to shut down the money. We can just have disclosure and transparency, and that's all we need. Now, a few years later, it's not just that they're refusing to pass basic disclosure and disclaimer rules, but it even gets worse than that. The lawyers are now arguing that um, corporations are intimidated if, if their money was disclosed. So, so you see lawyers in court uh, and outside in the public arguing that, that uh, giant companies like Walmart or Target or Exxon are scared uh, to give money into politics because they're so feeling so intimidated by threats. Now, and, and the, this is just where it um, goes beyond the level of absurd. They invoke precedent from the Supreme Court from the battle days in the, when, when the NAACP membership was being threatened with lynching. Right. So it's one thing to say that, you know, in the, in the 1940s and 1950s, people might get lynched for expressing their political viewpoints on race in the South and that there's reasons to protect that. But it's quite another thing to say that we should worry about Walmart and Exxon when they're giving money in politics. That, that is not a First Amendment concern. If, in fact, the Supreme Court says disclosure is fine, as the court said in the Citizens United decision, yes, we should know, and it's okay to know, and it's legal to know, why are Senator Mitch McConnell and others in Congress preventing disclosure from happening, from passing it, from approving it, from saying, yes, let's disclose the source of this money. Because the people who support Senator McConnell and the Republican Party would prefer to give this money anonymously, secretly through shell corporations. An example, the insurance uh, companies put a lot of money into the Chamber of Commerce. And it was the Chamber of Commerce that was saying things about Obamacare, not the insurance industry. It looked clean, right? It looked like it was just a business interest being expressed by the Chamber of Commerce, but it was really insurance money funding that. That's a problem. Uh, that's a problem because you can't evaluate the message if you don't know who the messenger is. Heather Gherkin, I've enjoyed listening to you and learning from you, and I thank you for taking this time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me. Historian Joyce Appleby came to town the other day, and I was eager to meet her. Her new book is out this very weekend, in which she ranges across 400 years of history with characters from Christopher Columbus to Charles Darwin. Shores of Knowledge explains how the curiosity of old Europe broke free of church dogma, creating the world we inhabit today. Her earlier books also follow threads that connect our past to our present. Read The Relentless Revolution, A History of Capitalism, and you'll get an interesting take on how and when capitalism and democracy do and don't get along. And above all, read this one, Inheriting the Revolution, in which, as one reviewer put it, she perfectly captures the world created by the sons and daughters of the American Revolution. Joyce Appleby taught for years at San Diego State and UCLA, where she's now a professor emerita. She served as president of both the Organization of American Historians and the American Historical Association. She still lectures, reads widely, spends time in the garden, and continues to feed the curiosity that drives every book and every article she writes. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. You have had such a long and prolific life as a historian. What were you looking for? What were you after? 
Oh, goodness, what a question. I don't think that I ha ever had a long-term goal in mind, but you mentioned curiosity. I was curious about things, and I think that is the key to, to an historian and a, probably a key to all knowledge makers. What do you uh, mean, curiosity? What is I, it? A curiosity is a kind of an itching desire to have a question answered that you, there, and an answer doesn't exist. I used to tell my students that everything they learned at the university was the answer to somebody's question. And if no one had asked a question, that answer wasn't there, that knowledge wasn't there. So I, I think that's the thing that's fascinating about curiosity. And of course this last book is all about curiosity and it's being unleashed because curiosity was not held in by respect in the Catholic Church, the, no. the Christian Church. It was uh, seen as a, a, a lust for knowledge and asking questions that only God knew. So you weren't supposed to ask about eclipses or tides or or comets or anything of that sort. And so the origin of that, the shorts of knowledge was my curiosity about how curiosity was liberated. You describe how the foundations of our knowledge of the, uh, of, of life, of the sciences of life began in that 400 year period from Christopher Columbus to Charles Darwin. What was the question you wanted to have answered about it? Well, as I said, curiosity had been proscribed. And Europeans, it's hard to believe, Europeans weren't very curious. They didn't travel much. They are very secure in the knowledge that they knew everything that was needed to know. And then they encounter these two continents and a cluster of islands in between them with this exotic flora, these strange animals and even stranger people. And they didn't know what to think because their understanding of the cosmos was that there was Adam and Eve, and then there was Noah's Ark, and that contained the world's population. But where did these people come from? And this was such an insistent, it was really an imperative question, because you had, you had to figure out whether, how they were going to maintain their orthodoxy, or maybe move outside of it. And a lot of them did move outside it. You said they had to be blindsided when they took these journeys, made these discoveries. What do you I, mean? Blindsided, I mean just smacked. Wow, who, who are these people? What is this topography? I suppose blindsided sounds sort of violent. This was more, oh my goodness, what a revelation. This exists. But to get there, they had to overcome what you describe as this lid on curiosity that the uh, church had kept on the natural world. And, Despite men like Galileo, the church succeeded in, in, in making ignorance a doctrine almost. Right. Well, it was, it was uh, ignorance a doctrine. It was a dogma that had to be protected. And a dogma, it, for its effectiveness, had to assume that it knew everything. But I don't think curiosity drove Columbus to the New World. I think he was an adventurer. He's a very religious man. I think he wanted to get to... Uh, the Spice Islands. He wanted to get to Asia. It was the people who came along with him and were just astounded. And in particular, a group of men who wrote about what they found. They wrote histories. They even drew pictures because they had such trouble describing what they had seen. And it was tho those men and they came back at a good time in Europe. They came back when there was a vernacular press, as you say, a press outside of Latin, and the printing was getting cheaper, and they wrote these books. There were a hundred publications about the New World produced in the first 20 years. So I think that's where the curiosity came in. You've said we can't have curiosity without imagination. Why is that? Well, because I think curiosity depends upon your imagining something different from what exists. Hmm. I think it, it, it it absolutely has this radical notion that we aren't bound by everything that we see and, and that we're told. And what's astounding to me is that it's not just curiosity, but within two or three generations of the discovery of the new world, they're they are not only questions, but there is the capacity to invest hundreds and thousands of hours into getting the answer. That's what science takes. It can't be casual curiosity. 
lot of people can have casual curiosity, but to move forward, you've got to have people with an intense, persistent, and there again, imagination comes in, imagining answers. Who were these people? One of my favorites in the, in the 17th century was Van Leeuwenhoek, who was a, a, in the cloth trade. Uh, and in the cloth trade, he dealt with magnifying glasses to look at the threads, the weaving threads to assess it. And he started making what turned out to be the microscope, magnifiers that with greater and greater and greater power. And then he wanted to put things under his microscope. He's the first one who had a microscope, so he would put a frog's leg under it, or a fish thin, or a grain of, of, of uh, wheat. And then one day he put under his microscope a drop of water, and guess what he saw? He saw what he called all these little beasties wandering around. He had discovered microbes. He had suffered the world of bacteria. Well, this had the effect of creating a sense that there's a difference between appearances and reality. There is a reality that can't be seen by the naked eye. And this, of course, was a great spur to further curiosity. I'm taken with this sentence from the book, passing from amateur passions to sober investigations of biology, geology, and astronomy. Curiosity upended the grand Christian narrative of the origins of life and the place of our planet in the universe. With what consequences? Well, the consequences, I suppose, are you and me. <laughs> our minds, our intellectual, the content. Our frame of reference, right? There's also a real intellectual difference because if you, the, the enemy of curiosity is dogma. Dogma is certain, it's inerrant. This is truth. But that's not true about science. Scientists, inquirers, these amateurs, they know it's a process. And what they're finding is tentative. It's, it, it might be replaced and overturned by someone or modified. And I think that's why today those people who are dogmatic have so much trouble with science. Because they think that science is like dogma. It's inerrant. They're saying absolutely that this is true. When they're really saying, this is as much as we know now but we're going, to, we're going to know more. It's a very different intellectual approach. The church was trying at its best to protect believers and, and, and everyday people from the terrors of the unknown, from hell, from uh, uh, fantastic creatures that uh, occupied the seas. They were trying to protect believers with the safety of that's dogma. Right. And that's what's so interesting about the beginning of the science is that they produce a different kind of stability. They produce a stability of, well, there weren't sea monsters out there. Maybe there aren't sea monsters. Um, these, these fish aren't going to do something I don't expect a fish to do. You know, so that there is a slow replacement of the stability of dogma to the stability of at least knowing something, of having the world um, friendly. I remember we visited the uh place from which Columbus set out on his first right. visit and being struck with the thought that as they sailed, no one knew what was out there. No one knew where the oceans led or what lay in the oceans, right? They had a lot of speculation. There were human beings with dog heads and sea monsters that would erupt from the ocean. I mean, they, there was a lot of speculation which really made it difficult for Columbus to convince a group of men to fly, sail with him. It's, it's, it's an amazing story, but it's one of intrepidity, just intrepid, just, you know, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to try it. We've got the courage and the guts to do this. But here's another perplexing thing. They were curious to come to this new world to find out what it looked like, what it was made of, and they found these amazing people, the native indigenous people, but very shortly, their discovery of these indigenous people led to their exploitation and enslavement. Uh, it's very interesting, the exploitation of the people, because the people led to, to a great deal of speculation. Where did they come from? One man went through, were they Phoenicians? Were they Finns? Were they Scythians? Were they Romans? Were they Greeks? He went through all the possibilities and finally concluded that they were something new. And I think the exploitation came with the need, because the people who follow Columbus most of them are adventurers. They're just out there to plunder. As we know with Pizarro and Cortez, 
And then they, if they're going to exploit it, they need workers. I didn't know until I read your book that I think it was by 1526, 1530, something. Mm -hmm. there were more slaves imported from Africa in this area than there were Europeans. That's right. There were six times more Africans than Europeans, I think, by 1565. It's just staggering. So, this, so in a way, the unintended consequence is to create an American experience, so to speak, that was founded on a vast system of slavery. That's true. That's true. But then that's, that's a part of capitalism, that desire to produce goods for the market and to use whatever you can to produce them. And they were busy, you know, for one thing they did was create uh, sugar plantations. Think of a world that doesn't have any sweetness except for the occasional honey that comes their way. And think of introducing sugar. These are the richest islands in the world when they were producing sugar. It took incredibly intensive labor. Just a, such a cruel system. Your cast of characters in the shores of knowledge ranges from Christopher Columbus to Charles Darwin, this period of 400 years. Did you come upon one thing they all had in common? Well, the great ones had genius. Hmm. I mean, when we get to the, to the 19th century and Alexander Humboldt and Charles Darwin, they, they have genius. They have the sense that we could understand how nature operates, what the powers of nature are. I confess that I had heard almost nothing, if anything, about Alexander Humboldt. What did he do for us? Well, he's really the world's first ecologist. He had a great desire to understand how, how the natural systems interacted. He was a mineralogist, he was a geographer, he was a geologist. He traveled, <laughs> these guys traveled heavy. He came with sextants and quadrants and meters that could tell you how, what the intensity of the blue water was. And he just measured everything. And Darwin had read all of his travel journals. And when he got to the New World, Darwin said, I, I used to admire Humboldt, now I adore him. <laughs> Darwin called him a, a, a grand progeny of right. scientific travelers. Exactly. It's amazing. You hadn't heard of him. I hadn't heard of him before his oh. day. This, and yet in his day, he was seen as second in importance only to Napoleon. He, like Darwin, was stinging in his comments about slavery. I learned this from your book. But when his famous book appeared in this country, the American version of his famous book, all the references to slavery had been excised. Isn't that astounding? How do you explain it? I only know that they did that because he said they did that. The other thing is that Darwin also rejected this idea that there was a difference in the races. And this is phenomenal because in the middle of the 19th century is when we get these theories of racial hierarchies. They're just, you know, and We begin to get men, to the development of eugenics. Right, right, exactly. But even before eugenics, that there are this, this the white races at top and you go down with each color. And they just both, both really the two greatest scientists of the, uh, in the natural sciences of the 19th century, both utterly rejected that. And what a shame that they weren't listened to. Humboldt, Darwin, and many others, as you write, defined our modern world while loosening the hold of religious dogma over the imagination and over scientific inquiry. How then do you explain the resurgence of, of religious fundamentalism in, in our time? Well, I think it was just too shocking to think of human beings as being what they are because of descent through modification. I mean, what, what a concept, as opposed to thinking you were created by God or that you had some essence, essence that was always there. Isn't that true today? A, Isn't evolution still the enemy? It, well, there are several parts of this country, including my home state of Texas, that where there are significant numbers of people who would like to return us to the belief system of 1492, and I'm right. not exaggerating. Right. Where does this lead us? Well, it doesn't lead us to curiosity, I'll say that. It doesn't lead us, I mean, we do have an attack on science now, cutting back on funding. Uh, you know, us, uh, we have, and certainly in our politics, we have the resurgence of dogmatism rather than curiosity about how programs might work out. There's an insistence that we know how they will work out, and we don't like them, they shouldn't. I mean, this is certainly the attack on Obamacare. Is you might just take this 
Well, let's see how it works out. This is a very important goal to offer health care. But no, it's wrong. It's but bad. As a historian, what does that tell you? Looking back over the span of time, what is what's happening to these currents of resistance to science, to knowledge, to, to, to imagination? What, what, what do you draw from that? I don't know. That's a very difficult question, Bill. I really can't explain it. Can societies evolve backwards? I don't think so. I'm one of the, no, I don't think so. I mean, one of the fascinating things to me is that we have a, a political system today, probably only in the last 10 years, I don't know, that seems sort of more abundant and rigid. And the other, there's also, there, you've got to recognize the element of racism. This, this long sense of a dominant white male authority in the country, and today you have racial diversity, you have women in positions of power. I, th I think there's a, I think that's why I don't think this is going to last. So you think, what, what's not going to last? This rigidity. It's not going to last. And this is a terrible thing to say, but I'm an old person so I can say it. I believe in reform by the Grim Reaper. <laughs> I don't think it's going to last because I don't think there is a, a rank of young people who are that frightened by the diversity, the demographic diversity and the presence of women and the changes in our society. They've come very fast, really, you have to admit. Last 25 years right. last of our life. Exactly. We didn't ask questions about uh, women or slaves or, or Hispanics in American culture until about 40 years ago. So we didn't know anything about them. We didn't teach anything about them. But you know, I don't think Americans can get away from how central the issue of race is. It's pretty, it's quite a foundation when you introduce an enslaved population, and, and it's a significant one, and with it, it's not just the enslavement, it's the racial prejudice that has to exist in order to defend and accept it. That's a, that's a heavy legacy, and I think, I think we're making amazing strides, but it, it, and yet? it takes time. So where do you see this racism playing itself out today? Well, the hatred of Obama might be one place. It's not just a hatred of him. I remember I grew up in, in, during the New Deal. People really hated Roosevelt, but they didn't delegitimize him. And I think with Obama, there is this just unwillingness to accept that he's president. I, how many people feel that way? I'm sure it's no more than 10 or 15 percent, but it's a very vocal group. I don't, that's just one explanation, but I certainly see it. And, and there are all kinds of other places where we see the racism playing out. And I think that many people who are optimists like me want to say, oh, we've made such progress and we're, not, we're unwilling to see until it's brought home to us by some event that it's, it's a fluctuating progress here and there and it's a moving forward but not in a strong phalanx moving forward. Put this new book, Shores of Knowledge, in the context of your earlier works on America inheriting the revolution and then the relentless revolution. Is there a thread that connects these three books in your life and your interest and your curiosity? I suppose there is and, and it's a kind of a chauvinistic motive. I mean, I think I've always been fascinated by the freshness of the United States and the tolerance for things and it's just that wonderful openness to possibilities. It was fascinating to me, curious again, is that the first generation were people born between 1776 and 1800, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what these people who'd never been subjects of King George, had never been colonists, how did they react differently? And I was interested in how they interpreted what had been given to them, encapsulated in the, in the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and it was kind of interesting, they didn't have the accomplishments that Europeans had. They didn't have any great art, any great architecture, any great novelists. So they celebrated what they did have, which was their initiative, their hard work, their go-getiveness. And th these are all sort of cliches, but there was a lot of truth in it when you look at how fast that nation was settled. People leaving nice, comfortable little farms and taking their sons and daughters and moving into the Ohio Valley and then beyond. In Inheriting the Revolution, you, you told how this first generation after the revolution took their, the founding fathers' gift to them, the revolution, and infused 
meaning into it. Succinctly, how did they do it? They, they certainly you know, gave all the proper bows to freedom and liberty and impressed, and also equality. There was a, an equalizing movement among the whites, not with black relations, but among the whites uh, after the revolution. And there was a tremendous admiration for ambition. And they, they did this in part by, with biographies. They, they had their heroes and they, and they wrote about them. And they also celebrated their accomplishments, but they were always their accomplishments that weren't traditional ones from a highly cultured point of view. They were doing things, you know, taking medicine out to Cincinnati, Ohio, and founding a medical school, or uh, moving the, the line of settlement further and further west. Um, they did this, obviously, because they had, they had writers, they had novelists, they had newspapers. Uh, newspapers. Americans had about four times the number of newspapers of any other country in the world, despite its small population. But they all commented on the phenomena that people in the country were not rubes. They knew as much as people in the city. They were reading the paper. That's really different. But what does it say, Joyce, that Americans today, many Americans today, no longer feel as this generation of Americans did about their capacity to shape their destinies. There's a great deal of futility and despair in the country, as you know. I think it's because the um, economy is not serving them as well as it once did. I think one of the, the things which I discuss in, in the Relentless Revolution is the dominance of the uh, financial services in our economy. But the financial services have changed dramatically themselves. They used to be facilitators of enterprise, the bankers. They lent you money or they issued stock for you, whatnot. But they had become players in themselves with their own goals, and their own goals are often inimical to those of the country as a whole. This very strong short-termism. I mean, we find that bankers, for instance, are playing a greater and greater role in the management of corporations, and they want results for their shareholders. Well, often quick results are antithetical to what's needed for long-term development. So that seems to be a major problem, that we have an increase. Money brings power, but it doesn't bring responsibility with it. Now, power without responsibility is a pretty dangerous. And capitalism brings creative destruction. Well, creative destruction is very, it's, okay. it's great for the economy, but it's hard for the society. Some of us believe that the defining issue of our time is the relationship between capitalism and democracy. What do you think about that? Well, I think it is, and I think one of the troubling aspects of that relationship is that they have a different, I mean, capitalism really is amoral, but democracy is not amoral. Democracy is moral. It has a sense of the well-being of the whole. So I think there is that uh, tension, but what has changed to complicated processes of fundraising one or another is that government is really no longer such a neutral player. It's kind of a patron of business now. So I think that the government ought to be much more concerned. Well, I was mentioning the creative destruction. You know, it just sounds great. Yet get rid of this old method of making metal or producing wood, whatever. But it's, it's, it closes down factories. It shrinks towns. You have all the social problems. And it's up to democracy to protect for them. And the other thing is capitalists act like they don't need government. <laughs> they need a strong judiciary. They need to have a legal system that guarantees the contracts. They need to have clean police and clean politicians. They need all of these things that create the stability that is essential to capitalism. You know, all these early explorers, or many of these early explorers and discoveries you write about were state-sponsored or, or, or sponsored by the king or uh, self-financed, and we forget that about capitalism today. It depends upon this culture. I don't think we forget about it. I think we're bamboozled. We're told over and over again that it's a natural system like aerodynamics, and you can't interfere with it. Well, it's not a natural system. It's a totally social system that has changed dramatically from generation to generation. The com you know, composition of the factors in, in capitalism, but also the changes in the way in which the government acts. Look at the New Deal. Here you have capitalism absolutely down on its knees, and you have a program that put people to work, program that invested in our infrastructure. I mean, that, that spending brought us out of the 
of the uh, depression. And well, look at the. But we're uh, not having that today the way we should. You say in inheriting the revolution that this generation of Americans quickly established a new identity for themselves as Americans. Given the raging inequality today, given the vast diversity in this country, given the clash of opinions and values and beliefs, can we create a new identity as Americans? What is an American today? Do we want to create a new identity? I think we want to, to, to recover what's best in us. A tremendous respect for each individual, a belief in expanded ambits for action and thinking, um, a, a uh, admiration for innovation, I, uh, a respect for the law, a belief in an independent judiciary. I, I'm sounding like a terrible chauvinist, but I do <laughs> admire the best qualities in our country. George Appleby, thank you very much for joining me. The new book is The Shores of Knowledge, New World Discoveries, and the Scientific Imagination. It's been a great pleasure, Bill. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sylvan. Our editor is Sakay Tang. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz, the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation, the HKH Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company. <laughs>